Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to the Living with Power Hope podcast. Lena Abu-Jamra here, and I am so glad you're back. Listen, if it's your first time here, welcome. If you've been here before, then you know that every week we get to spend time talking about uh, faith, life, culture, and all sorts of things. We are now in a series in the book of Hebrews, and I have heard some great things from you about it. It's called the Confidence Series, and I hope it's encouraging you. Hey, I've got some great news. My new book is out. Don't tell anyone you're reading this, uh, A Christian Doctor's Thoughts on Sex, Shame, and Other Troublesome Issues. That's a whole lot of title, but it's really a great book about forgiveness and love and intimacy and sex. And so if you want to find out more about me, get the book. It's on Amazon, or you can find out about it at drlinabook.com. Honestly, everybody who's reading it is connecting with it. It's been really um, exceeding my expectations in in terms of its reaction from readers. And so um, this is a book that I was nervous to put out, but honestly, you guys have been so gracious and encouraging. And if you haven't read it, uh, do so, get it. I think you will not regret it. (laughs) That rhymed, all right. Uh, So uh, without further ado, let's hit the Hebrews study for today. And uh, uh, this is a 10-week study. We're now uh, well on our way here. I hope you can sit back and enjoy it. Or if you're out and about, uh, just listen up, pay attention, and let's pray that God moves in our hearts as we dig into his word and the spirit of God moves in us. Thanks again for checking in. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. We are continuing the study in the book of Hebrews. And we are in Hebrews 13, and we're going to finish this chapter. It's shorter in some ways than what we've been. We've been really eating chunks of scripture every week, and it's been awesome. And every week we've looked at sort of an angle, an aspect of God. And and the whole series is called the Confidence Series. We're trying to build our confidence in the Lord because the entire impetus of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. It's been focused on the superiority of Christ. It is written to a people, the, the Jewish people who had given their life to Jesus. They were no longer walking according to the traditions that they were had been brought up in. They were no longer worshiping in a synagogue. They were now a member of a local church and they were worshiping the risen Christ who had died and risen again to pay the price for their sins. And because of that, they were getting some persecution and because of the persecution, many of them were sort of going, man, I'm not sure I made the right decision. I should have stayed in comfort land. And comfort land can look so appeasing, except it's not the truth. And so and so this book is sort of a, a, a sermon, really. It's a set of three sermons that the writer wrote to encourage them to persevere in the faith and to see with fresh eyes again how Jesus is indeed better and and how by seeing that and understanding that and believing it, there would be a, a revival of their zeal for God and a desire for godly living. And so again and again, the book of Hebrews, we're told to look at Jesus, to consider Jesus, to fix our eyes on Jesus. And, and he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And, and we have been so inspired by that because even in our day and age, we see a culture where though we may not be suffering persecution yet, we see that there's a cultural drift away from the ways of scripture. And so, and so every week we've sort of looked at who God is and, and, and some characters of him. And so week one, we talked about how because God speaks, we can be confident and, and how God speaks to his son and then how in control he is and how faithful he is and how he loves us and doesn't lie and how he's better and, and on and on. And last week we talked about God being our father and the love that he has for us, so loving that he chastises us and corrects us and disciplines us, not out of a sense to punish us, but a sense of love for us to, to bring us back to a place of hope and endurance and perseverance. And now... We've built on 12 chapters of doctrine. And, and it's interesting because because Hebrews 13 is sort of this like, it's an interesting chapter of like a lot of different items. It's almost like a to-do list. And and but it's not, it's more than that. It's it's really a set of ethics. And and I love what one commentary, one preacher says, you know, 
Ethics is born out of doctrine. You can't go to the doing without understanding the doctrine, what's behind it. The doing is sort of the overflow of that. And in Hebrews 13, that's really what it is. And another pastor that I have listened to in this series in Hebrews uh, really summed it up so well. And he, he, he basically, the reminder that he gave, and I think this is, this is very helpful, is that the book of Hebrews is, is a sermon. Remember, it's a sermon. The writer wrote it as a sermon. And it's almost like you get to the end of the book of Hebrews and the writer's just, he's a, you know how preachers at the end, they're like trying to get in the last, like, don't forget this, 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 this. And so you start seeing these commands one after the next. And it's almost like wrapping up a sermon and trying to squeeze in every little piece of advice that he can give them. And so it's this, really, it's a Christian ethic in Hebrews 13 that builds on doctrine of 12 chapters. And so I think this will help you sort of frame it rather than reading and going, wait, wait, we went from talking about Jesus to now all of these things that he wants us to do. Well, that's the point of the Christian life. Because of doctrine, because of what we know about God, it influences how we live and and in it, so the thread, and we'll get to in verse um, eight in a moment, the highlight verse is going to be Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's sort of the skeleton that helped me summarize this chapter, which is, again, remember how we're looking each week at who God is. And today, because he is constant, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because God is constant, we can be confident. Well, how is he constant? Well, we're going to see Four different ways that he is constant and his constancy, the fact that he never changes uh, is what sort of guides our framework to be confident in him. It's a good thing to know that God never changes. He's not going to wake up tomorrow and be like, oh, God no longer loves us like we thought he did or God no longer is just like we thought he did. No, he's constant. He doesn't change. The things that we see him do in his word, Hebrews 11, the stories of the men and women who gave everything for Jesus and God came through for them, those same stories can be held on by us because of who he is, because of his constants. And so this is an incredible aspect of God that I think should give us stability. But but so 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 we're going to kind of follow that thread of confidence. But in it, I want to, I think just to help you sort of understand the chapter, um, I want to sort of frame it also. So what I'm going to do is kind of walk you through the sketch of, of how it's put together, and then I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to sort of give you the application points, which are um, this how we can build our confidence. But but the sketch of it, remember, we're talking about ethics. And interestingly, I also think this idea of ethics is part of God's constance. There's a sense sometimes we can think, like a lot of people in modern day era will say, well, I, I like the God of the New Testament, but I'm not so sure about the God of the Old Testament. And I think an important reminder for us is that he is constant. The same God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. It's not different. Jesus is the Son of God, but it's not like all of a sudden in the New Testament, everything about God from the Old Testament is gone. No, the same God we see in the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. In fact, Jesus is not a creation just of the New Testament. You go all the way back to Genesis and you see God referring to himself as we. The Trinity is a unique aspect of, of, of the deity, the only deity that is true. And it is an aspect of deity that is not true in any other religion. The fact that there's a God who is three in one, the same. Uh, it's not like the father's greater than the son, the son's great. No, they're three in one. And, and so all the way in Genesis we see Christ in the story of creation, but then we see the entire Old Testament talk about Jesus because, again, Jesus is God. He's just one aspect of the Trinity. And then, of course, in the New Testament, the incarnation of Christ. So a, a very kind of unique thing. We'll just ask God to give you more understanding into that because it is, a, 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 I think sometimes it's like one of those things that boggles the mind. Have you ever tried to think about eternity, eternity past or eternity future? It's hard to wrap our minds around it, but that's sort of the idea of the Trinity. And, and people have written books about it and commentaries on it. 
on it. And, but it's, it's a fact of the Bible. And so, and so you've got the constancy of this God. And so the fact that God in the Old Testament, you know, of course, the Old Testament, we talked last week about how it's set on the Mosaic law and, and it was all about doing. And if you obeyed the law, of course, nobody could obey the law. That's why they needed Jesus to come. But still, that, that emphasis on doing, you kind of go, well, in the New Testament, we're all about grace, right? So, so we, tr- we tend to de-emphasize the doing. But in de-emphasizing the doing, be careful because it doesn't mean that God doesn't care what we do. Of course he does. He's holy. And throughout the New Testament are scriptures and instructions of how we ought to live. The difference is that we're not trying to earn God's favor through our doing, right? In the New Testament, doing is a result of being. Because of who we are in Christ, because Christ is now alive in us, we are no longer ourselves. We are living in him. What comes out of us should be um, done by the power of the Holy Spirit, Now, it can be challenging as a Christian, right? Because it's a constant dying to self and being alive to the spirit. And it's easier with some people than others. It's easier in certain circumstances than others. But that's the process of growth as a Christian. The process of sanctification sanctification is to become more dead to self and more alive in the spirit. And so here's this God of the Old Testament, who is the God of the New Testament, who gives us now these ethics in, in Hebrews 13, which grow out of a doctrine of who God is and the fact that Christ is better. But still, there is this outflow of behavior. And in chapter 13, we see sort of three aspects of responsibility that we're given. First is, is a responsibility that he talks about to others. And I'll sketch it out for you as I start reading it. That responsibility to others involves a sustained love and sympathy towards others. Love and sympathy. So if you're taking notes, you can say relationship to others. That includes love and sympathy. And I'll, we'll get into the verses in a minute. Second aspect of responsibility of ethics is to myself. So what responsibilities do I have to myself? Well, we're going to hit up on what Hebrews 13 covers, which is sexual purity, satisfaction, and steadfastness. So first, we have a responsibility to others to love them with a sustained love and with sympathy to those in need. We'll see in a minute how it plays out. Then we've got standards uh, for the believer to myself, and that includes sexual purity, satisfaction or contentment, and steadfastness. Okay, we're going to cover those things. And then there's a responsibility not just to others, not just to myself, but to God. And you go, what are the things that are covered in Hebrews 13? Well, um, those S's, again, because sermons have to have alliteration. And so you've got, uh, as, as it pertains to my responsibility to God, we're going to cover in Hebrews 13 uh, the concept of separation from the world, sacrifice of praise, submission to authority, and supplication. Separation, sacrifice, submission, and supplication. I know that I give you a lot of material but we need it. All right. We can do a light version of this, but you don't need that. We are here to study the word of God and we need to flesh it out. So this kind of gives you a sketch of where this chapter is going. So with that in mind, let me read you Hebrews 13. It says, let brotherly love continue. Remember ethics born out of doctrine. So he's already told, told them about chapter 12 was sort of this this discipline, this God loves us as a father. He disciplines us. Then we move into this kingdom that cannot be shaken. We're living for the next kingdom. You know, persevere. He's t- talking to a Hebrew people who have given their life to Jesus and he's urging them to persevere. And now this is the outplaying of that. You have a responsibility to others. How? Let brotherly love continue. The kind of brotherly love that's mentioned here is a Philadelphia kind of love. It is a sacrificial kind of love of a brotherly nature. If you are familiar with the city of Philadelphia, I think that's their slogan, the city of brotherly love. Uh, and so let brotherly love continue. Uh, it's hard to be loving to everybody. It's easy to be loving to some people. Holidays, as it reminds you, there's some people that are hard to love. And, and, and yet they're urging. And by the way, same in the house of God. It's not different in the church, right? There's some people in church that are easier to love than others, but, but that's not the way of Christ. 
So we need prayer for that. But then he goes on, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. We all have stories about it, right? I mean, this isn't like some weird Hallmark movie. This is the fact that we've you've had interactions with people. You know, you ever been somewhere and out of the blue? I remember once I was uh, my I was going to speak at a conference, and on my way there, I took an exit, and I think I blew out a tire. And I remember being on the side of the road, going, "What am I going to do now?" And this couple showed up, and and I know people like warn you about letting you know talk, you know nowadays like it would be like I'm not talking to anybody. I'm calling AAA, but I was tired on time. And next thing you know, this couple ended up like helping me make it to the station to get the tire changed and. And they turned out to be Christians and it was crazy. And I invited them to the event. It was like a complicated story. They never showed up. I never showed them, saw them again. They were the kindest people I could have had. I think about instances like this and I go, I wonder if they were just angels that got some, I, I don't know, but, but you never know who God puts your way that is either meant to encourage you to help you or maybe an opportunity for you to show this love that we have. You never know. This is what he's saying. Um, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison. There were many people in that time when this was written who were being thrown in prison for their faith. And, uh, and of course, this doesn't just include remembering those who are in prison for their faith, but all people in prison. It says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage, so, so remember those first two verses, they talk about your responsibility to others, steadfast, sustained love, and sympathy to others in need. And now he moves to this um, personal ethics. Let marriage be held uh, in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. This verse is, is huge in our day and age, right? Uh, there are so many ways that we mess up, that we dishonor marriage. In our modern day culture, by the way, it's not, I'm not even talking just about, I mean, there's a lot of ways we dishonor it. And frankly, we dishonor marriage through divorce. And while divorce has become very acceptable, and uh, in fact, many Christian leaders have, in fact, this week, there's a Christian leader whose post went viral talking about how healthy she is after divorce. And whatever the reason for the divorce, I totally get it. You know, happy that she's strong in the Lord. But the reality is no one ever thinks anymore that divorce is a dishonoring to marriage. While there may be good reason for divorces, God has given us permission to divorce in certain instances, but it's become so commonplace in the church. And I think we forget that divorce is one way we dishonor marriage. Uh, we dishonor marriage by living outside of marriage. Uh, uh, many people who go to church who know better are still living with their uh, significant others, um, justifying it because they're in love or because they're going to get married someday. But, but the biblical model for marriage is that uh, the marriage bed is undefiled, meaning that God ordained sexual relations to be uh, holy in the context of marriage between one man and one woman. Uh, we dishonor marriage through adultery. We dishonor marriage through neglect. We dishonor marriage through redefining marriage. So a lot of ways that we dishonor marriage, by the way, everyone always thinks, well, it's just, it's just same-sex marriage is strong. No, there's a lot of ways that we dishonor marriage. Uh, we dishonor marriage in the way that we uh, tolerate immorality uh, individually in the context of marriage. We So many ways that we can think about this. And so I, I think just something for us to really pay attention to, whether you're single, by the way, if you're single, uh, different type of temptations, but still sexual temptations are real, whether you're single or married. But just because you're single doesn't mean you have the same temptations as the married, but the temptation and lust is true for both. Marriage doesn't protect you from lust, right? Those of you who are married, I mean, the temptation in this concept of the flesh is there in a maybe different fashion than singles, but both of us have um, 
and instruction and ethics that should be born out of an understanding of who God is. And so, so he hits on that. Then he moves on again. Remember, just like a preacher who's finishing up all of those important points and ethics. And verse 5 says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Confidence grows out of understanding the truth about God and his promises. And so, and so it's interesting because, you know, money, well, first he talks about sex and now he's talking about money. And both of those things are such an integral part of the temptations that we face. We, you know, when you look at the first John 2 passage where he talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. I mean, so much temptation just boils down to those two areas. And so, um, and so he says, when it comes to ethics, uh, of course, the relation to others, love them, be sympathetic to those in need, but to yourself, maintain a sexual purity, uh, be satisfied with who God is, with what God has given you. You can have everything and not be satisfied, and you can have nothing and be satisfied. And so they're, they're not directly proportional to one another. I mean, you, you've got to look at your heart and see, God, am I discontent? God has been giving you everything, and you still find yourself wanting what you don't have. And so this is an important point of... Of, of, of uniqueness to the Christian. Are you content with what God has given you? And, and that contentness, you, you can't settle in security and in contentedness without understanding who God is. Where is your confidence? He says, here's your confidence. It's that God is your helper. It's not the stock market. Every one of us freaks out. If you have any ability to save, the people who don't freak out are people who don't save. And But if you're saving right now, it's the odds are that you get nervous when stock markets go down. I'm in that place in my life now where I get nervous when I see that. And then I go, why am I nervous? First of all, I don't know how long I'm going to live. Secondly, it's God who controls my future. He's the one who's in charge. What in the world do we think that some guys in Wall Street are going to give us the security that we need? And so the writer of Hebrews is reminding them like, like, the Lord is our helper. This is a quote from Psalm 118, verse 6. He says, what? I will not fear. What can man do to me? And so uh, uh, important to sort of remember that when it comes to our ethics. Are we satisfied? Great time to, to gauge those things. Purity, satisfaction. How are you doing in that? And then um, we're going to get into uh, steadfastness here. He says, remember your leaders. Actually, it's a little submission here too. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, I'll be honest, I have to make a footnote. We're living in an age where everyone is critiquing leaders, right? They're failing, like they're falling like flies. And it's easy to kind of read that verse and gloss over it and be like, well, not in 2023, man. In 2022, 2023, we can't trust leaders. And I really think this is a cancer in the church right now where because of what some leaders have modeled, there is a lack of, of trust in all leaders. And, and I think we can't, ignore the Bible's teaching on church structure and leadership. And in that is a uh, submission to the leaders that God has put in our lives. And so one way to ignore that is to put yourself outside of that submission structure by saying, well, I'm not going to church anywhere right now. Therefore, I don't have to submit to anybody. Be beware if that's you. And, and I, I say this sensitively because I wrote the book on this, not on not submitting, but on fractured faith, right? And so I think it's easy to be like, well, I've been so hurt by church leaders, therefore I can't trust any of them anymore. Be careful. They account, they have to give account of themselves to God, but you also have to give account of yourself. And so he says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider to come their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Hello, anybody listening to what's going on in 2022? Everybody has their teaching on something. No one seems to agree anymore. It's 
so messed up anymore. He says, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefit those devoted to them. Now he moves on to talk about this separation. He says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Let me finish reading and come back and explain. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us offer continually sacrifice of praise. All right, let me stop at verse 14. So what's he saying? Um, let me remind you that Hebrews was written again to Jewish people who was very familiar with the old sacrificial system. And in the old sacrificial system, we've taught this before, back in the Old Testament, uh, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, unlike all the other offerings that were offered on a regular basis for the cleansing of sin, at Yom Kippur, there, the high priest would go outside of the camp and offer, remember, he would take two goats, and then they would kill one goat, and then the other goat would be let go, and it was the scapegoat, basically, which was considered like he would take away the sin of the people, right? And so that goat that was sacrificed, you wouldn't eat. Unlike all the other sacrifices week after week, where people would eat the remains of the sacrifice, that goat you would not eat. And it happened outside of the camp because it was considered dirty. The comparison here is made, and you have to take it for what it is. It's a comparison. In the New Testament, of course, the fulfillment of this prophecy is, is through Jesus. And Jesus was crucified at Golgotha, which was outside of Jerusalem. And so here's Jesus who uh, gets uh, put on the altar. He's First of all, he is the high priest. Secondly, he is the one on the altar, which is the cross. You know, he gets put on the cross outside of Jerusalem. And uh, uh, a reminder that he bore the reproach of the people outside. So there's a separation from how everything else, from life in Jerusalem, life, life in the city. There's Jesus who's outside of the camp. And really, I think, and I believe some of the insinuation here is, is simply this, to be separate. That in Christ now, we also are invited outside of the camp. We've been given a new life now through the shedding of Jesus' blood on the cross. And in this new life, there's a separation from how the rest of the culture lives. Not to be outside of the world. Remember, John teaches that to be in the world, but not of the world. But the idea here is that uh, we are to be separate, uh, just and we are to bear a reproach. And you cannot live in the world as a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, and not suffer some form of persecution. I think 2 Timothy says, all who live a godly life will suffer persecution. So if you're not suffering any persecution, the question is, why not? What part of your life is not consistent with the way of Christ, because if you're walking like Jesus, you're going to bear reproach and you're going to stick out in a culture that does not share the same values as Christ has. Even in Hebrews 13, we've mentioned many things that are not consistent with how the culture would teach you about sexual ethics, about helping those maybe who are in prison, those who we might look at and say, well, they deserve to be there. Well, um, uh, Again, uh, the way of Christ is not like the way of the world, and so and so. Then you know, besides this, um, the 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 uh, we're talking about being separate as it pertains to God, our relationship as pertains to God. Now we move into praise, and and I like this concept of sacrifice of praise. It says in verse fifteen, through Him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. I I, I spent some time thinking about that this week, guys, and I want to be honest, praise isn't always easy. Some of you are happy if you're in Enneagrams, you're like a seven. Others of you are like me. We're a little more Eeyore-ish, right? And, and, and for us, it might be harder to give praise all the time because we see the world as cup half empty. I'm not talking about personality types here, but I really believe that the hardest time to give praise is when you have to give it as a sacrifice of praise. Sometimes you look at your circumstances in your life and it's not what you wanted it to be. 
That's when praise matters because it is a sort of sacrifice of saying, God, I'm not thanking you because my circumstances are good. I'm thanking you because I recognize that you are good. And so an encouragement for us to give praise to God no matter what we're living in, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. It is indeed a sacrifice of praise. And so whether you feel like it or not, sacrifice something. It might sacrifice your sense of timing. It might be a sacrifice of your expectations. It might be a sacrifice of your dreams to say, God, this is the life you've given me. I praise you in it because you are good. Are you giving God a continual sacrifice of praise? That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do it privately, do it publicly, do it because it's true. He says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Listen, they will have to give account too. So if you're in an abusive leadership, leave, find a new place of healthy leadership. But don't let the bad example of some put you in a place where you resent all leadership. Again, I've said it before, I'll say it again. Verse 18, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience. Here's just a supplication. As a leader writing this, the writer of Hebrews is saying, pray for us. It isn't, I, I feel the same thing. Pray for me, pray for me. I'm, I'm not a leader of millions. I'm not a leader of hundreds of thousands, but even in leading you here, I want to be held in prayer because I need it. He says, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience. I long for that. And if you're leading anywhere, we pray for you that God will help you to have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. I'll finish with a benediction and then I'll wrap up some, some applications here. He says, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, that's the new covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. He finishes it sort of like he would finish a letter, even though it was a sermon and it's funny, when you read the last verses, I know Paul didn't write Hebrews. I don't believe he did, but it does sound a little bit like him at the end, doesn't it? Um, I don't know who wrote Hebrews. I can't wait to find out someday. It's such a special book, and this benediction at the end will say, I'll pray it over you in a moment. But let me go back to my outline here to sum up. I, I felt it was necessary to walk you through this chapter with all of these diverse thoughts, but to kind of come back to this idea of Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, and I'll walk through four main points of application. God's commands are constant and give me confidence over sin. We're talking about confidence based on who God is. Listen, because his commands are constant, the same teaching on marriage in the Old Testament holds in the New Testament. God did not change his mind on that. The same teaching on satisfaction and coveting in the Old Testament, 10 commandments, don't covet. One of the 10 commandments is here in the New Testament. God's promises, his sorry, his commands are constant. We're saved by grace. We're not saved by keeping the commands. But God still commands those things. They're just done out of a heart that is free, that is not condemned, out of a heart that no longer lives to self, but Christ lives in us. That's why we can have confidence over sin. It's not because we're perfect. It's because of who he is. We can be committed to loving others always. We can live purely in and out of marriage. We can overcome the lust of the flesh. We can overcome the pride of life. We can be completely unneeded of having bigger, better, more, all the things that we think we need. We can 
pray in humility for our leaders and submit to them even when we don't agree with everything they're doing. Listen, we can do those things, not because of who we are, but because God's commands are constant. You and I can have confidence over sin. All right, here's a second application point. God's, not just his, pro, not just his commands, but his promises are constant. God's promises are constant. And what do they give me confidence over? Not over sin. God's promises give me confidence over fear. I love the verse in, in, in chapter 13, verse 5 and 6, where he says, So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. God's promises are constant. Psalm 118, same words that David wrote in Psalm. Now come back in Hebrews. Because God's commands, because God's promises, I'm sorry, I keep mixing up those two words. Because God's promises are constant, you and I can have victory over fear. Listen, we don't fear, we don't become fearless simply by pulling ourselves by the bootstraps and convincing ourselves that we can do it. Our world is full of self-help theories. If you can be stronger, you can do more. You just can boss it up and win this in your mind. Listen, that is not the confidence I'm talking about. That is not the fearlessness I'm talking about. I'm talking about a fearlessness that is rooted in the promise of God, rooted in the truth of God's word, rooted in the fact that our God never lies and the same God who promised it before is the God who's given us the promise now who's going to fulfill it in the future. If you and I could just keep those promises in our hearts, how we will have victory over fear. Do you fear in your life? I wonder if you've forgotten God's promises. And so God's promises, they're constant. Listen, they don't change. They don't change with the weather. They don't change with the economy. They don't change with, with the leaders who get elected. They are true and constant. And we can have victory over fear because of them. Two more practical applications. God's character is constant. And because his character is constant, he gives me confidence when everything around me is changing. Do you know that everything is changing? It's the truth. Church world is changing. Culture, it's changing. Entertainment's changing. Ads, they're changing. People's interests are changing. People's beliefs are changing. People's personalities are changing. Everything is changing. We used to work in the workplace. Now we work in the house. We used to do write letters by hand. Now we barely text each other. Everything has changed. And in a world where everything's changing, we can have confidence because we have a God who never changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's goodness doesn't change. It's not based on my behavior. It is based on who he is. God's love doesn't change. It is not earned by my performance. It is simply given to me generously, no matter what I've done for today. God's faithfulness is steadfast. Even when I cannot see it, even when I don't deserve it, even when I'm faithless, we're told in 2 Timothy, he remains faithful. God is constant. He never changes. Everything around you can change, but he's the same. And because he's constant, because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, you and I can be unshakable in a culture that is shaking us to the core. And so here's the fourth and last application. I am confident because he's constant. Number four, not just God's commands are constant, giving me confidence over sin, not just God's promises are constant, giving me confidence over fear, not just God's character is constant, giving me confidence over everything when everything around me is changing, but God's peace is constant, giving me confidence to finish my course with joy. I come back to the benediction at this point. It's his peace that he gives us. It's constant. In this storm, remember the story of Jesus in the boat and he's sleeping and the disciples are freaking out. There's waves and storm tossed and in the middle of it, they're freaking out. They wake Jesus up. They go, how can you sleep? Don't you care about us? He stilled the waves. He says, where's your faith? And they look to each other and they're like, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. It's my favorite image of Jesus, by the way. Of all the stories of Jesus, that is my favorite. I love it. 
I love the notion that God is so at peace. Jesus is so at peace that he's unfrowned. He never thought for a second they would drown, even though it looked like they would. I like it better even than Peter walking on the water. There's just something so reassuring about a Savior who, with one blink of an eye, can stop the storm. And out of it is an all-awareness of this is God. He gives us peace in the storm. And so we end with this benediction. Now, may the God of peace. I love that he calls him that. He calls him a God of peace. Over and over again, we're told that about God. That he's a God of peace. And I think that is an awesome reminder in a time when chaos abounds in our culture. Be the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. So much of what we've talked about in the Levitical, you know, the references to Leviticus and the sacrificial system, it's all summed up here. He says, may he, this God of peace, might say, man, killing animals and the death of Jesus, that doesn't feel peaceful. Listen, it achieved peace. You and I can have peace because of the sacrifice of Christ. He says, may the God of peace equip you with everything good that we may do his will. That peace is what I want in my life. That peace is why we can praise him even when the storm is raging. Praise is the indication that I have peace in my heart. Do you know that sacrifice of praise? It is a sign that there's peace and an awareness in my life that there is a God who has conquered death. That prayer is my means to communicate with this God of peace. God's given us this invitation in Hebrews to step into his presence by grace with boldness. Why? Because of Jesus. Prayer is the means to maintain contact with this God of peace. And the power that we get is God-given, and it is the power that comes from a God who is peace. And so that, at the end, is grace, isn't it? And so he ends the book with grace, be with all of you. And no better way to end this amazing, outstanding book. A reminder that we serve a God who is the same yesterday, today, or forever. He never changes. He's constant. He is far better than anything this world can offer. That's who Jesus is. He is worthy of our worship. Well, that's the end of our time together, and I'm so glad you checked in. I hope that you found this study useful. Listen, I'd love for you to come back next week. We drop new episodes every week, and we're going to continue with the Hebrew study. Hey, why don't you use the time during the week to read through what we just uh, studied? Why don't you go back and read from Hebrews on and on, and uh, let the Word of God dwell in you richly. Uh, let us uh, lean into what God has uh, is doing in our lives. And uh, before I leave you, let me remind you that you can check out drlinabook.com and find out all about my new book or just go to Amazon and put in my name or the title of the new book. Don't tell anyone you're reading this. I think you're going to love this book. Hey, if you've read it, why don't you go to Amazon and leave a review. And if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, do so. Uh, it will be an easy way to be reminded every week that there's a new episode. Hey, again, thanks for being here. We're praying for you. If you want to leave me a message, do it at lena at livingwithpower.org. And uh, with that in mind, enjoy the rest of your day. Take care and know that God loves you.